Chris, I was uh, spending a little time on LinkedIn and got to thinking, you know, that typically I just click the like button, but I started like, you know what, maybe I should be more thoughtful here about the reaction that I am attributing to my click. So I don't know, I guess it's Facebook now or whatever the deal is, but there's like a bunch of different ones. It's not just the little thumbs up. Do you know the other ones? Like, do you know what they mean? There's like a light bulb. I assume that means like, that's a good idea. Yeah, insightful is what they call that one. Then there's the little uh, emoji that looks like a, a laughing face, and that stands for funny. The heart that you love something or what have you. There's some green hands that appear to be clapping. That's celebrate. But then there's a purple hand with a floating heart above it. I had to look it up. It means support. Support. Yes, it expresses that you empathize with someone's experience or support them during a challenging time. What would be the symbol for like virtue signaling? The poop emoji. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 342 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. Hey, that's a really insightful uh, introduction there, Reed. I'm going to put a little light bulb next to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> very supportive. Very supportive. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for uh, hopping in for another week of Touchpoint. Certainly appreciate the support. Before we get to today's episode, I want to give a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can find out more about this show and others on the network, the episodes that we're covering, topics that we're talking about, all that kind of fun stuff. While you're there, there's something called the TPS report. You'll see it up in the top navigation. Click on that name, email address, affords you one email, exactly one email a week with five articles to kick off your week on a Monday morning. Hopefully that is a little value add for you. So we'll uh, we'll pause here again, touchpoint.health. Go sign up for the TPS report and we will meet you back here for today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So this week, Reed, I was on a webinar panel in which we were discussing if generative AI is the answer to better patient access. It was a really good conversation that we had about 
uh, generative AI and all the different ways it's being applied in the health system. But as we were talking through the on the panel session, it kind of sparked in my mind the thought of, wait, patient access strategies are actually much broader than sometimes how we try to define them. It's an, another example of one of these terms, which sometimes we say it and we might mean something that has a much narrower meaning than what it actually is. And I know you've been involved in a lot of patient access strategies yourself at your organization. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, and I think there's probably some different definitions uh, for this, which we'll get into here in a minute of, you know, actually, what is it? Depending on who you ask, they probably define the idea of patient access a little differently. Could be a department, could be more of a function or, um, you know, something people do, an action. It's interesting. It kind of depends on how you think about it. But yeah, I mean, I would say uh, having some level of oversight of our consumer facing presence, a lot of that does ladder back to this idea of patient access. How are people actually receiving or kind of obtaining care? As we've used that this term before on the show, right? Like digital front door kind of expressions of what patient access could be. But then there's like patient access after their care as well, right? Making sure that you have continuous access through care. I know those are some strategies I've worked on before, um, you know, kind of keeping patients engaged, et cetera, throughout their entire care. And like you said, if you look at this kind of concept of patient access, it's actually a little bit bigger. The entirety of patient access is much broader. So let's dedicate today's episode to actually getting into this term, kind of drilling in a little bit and talking about how we could start to think about this in a much broader way. And we'll start first, Reed, with a survey that was just recently done by Experian Health that was entitled, What is Patient Access? Exploring the Key Benefits and Challenges. I think it might have the answer here in it, right? Yeah, let's take a look at this. You know, they start off talking about you know, what people and in, in patients value. Of course, you know, we've talked a lot about convenience and those types of things over the years. Well, that that is what's kind of bubbled up, right? Timely access to their doctor kind of rises to the top, they say. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think when you ask people what's important, again, we're trying to sell something or offer something to the consumer that they don't particularly want in most cases. You know, it's not like buying, you know, consumer packaged goods or a car or house or, you know, something like that, right? It's either something being done to you in a lot of cases or, you know, not something that you're particularly excited about. So with that in, in mind, this idea of convenience becomes a big deal. And convenience in this particular case for Experian, and because, by the way, this is the solutions they offer, it's around the ability to book appointments more quickly and looking at like that whole concept of how do they, how patients can easily find and access the right appointments for their particular condition or their treatment. They even say here, patient access as defined by experience in this study is what they call the cornerstone of the healthcare system. And it encompasses the systems and strategies that make or break a patient's access to care. Can they find a suitable provider in their area? How easy is it to book appointments and register for care? And can they understand and pay their bills without too much difficulty? Again, it's a you know practicality or a practical answer to some of this. Paying their bills without difficulty. Nobody's excited about paying bills. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they go on to talk about 
uh, logistical elements, you know, geographic location, transportation, you know, how easy can you get there? Uh, again, all kind of back to this idea of convenience, the administrative process, uh, scheduling, verifying insurance. Oh, gosh, it's a nightmare. I, our CEO talks about banning the clipboard, you know, and that's kind of where a lot of this is, right? Like, how do you right. check in and, you know, not have to deal with paper while you're there and stuff like that. So, again, how quickly and how seamless does this feel? Do you feel like you're being cared for, you know, stuff like that? This kind of speaks to the fact that most of this stuff, when you're looking at digital front door strategies and patient access strategies through digital, you start to realize that many of these services are kind of clunky, maybe they're disjointed, different in, you know, different systems together. Then this is why this is a big dissatisfaction point, I should say, for patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we start to develop strategies around these patient access things, some of the KPIs we look at to just try to prove success is around like things like wait time for appointments or tests or procedures, speed and accuracy of appointments, percentage of no-show rates, efficiency and accuracy of verification, coding and billing, and then revenue collection. And then, of course, staff performance and productivity. How easy, if we implement these solutions, how easy will it be for the staff to kind of onboard new uh, patients into the whole process? Mm -hmm. And so naturally, that kind of leads to some of the benefits of implementing strategies around patient access. Yeah. So, I mean, first, you want to talk about the experience itself. We've talked a lot and almost exclusively on the show about digital. So digital systems, they say, can simplify the booking process for patients. Scheduling protocols, business rules, this is where some of the AI comes in, being predictive about what you need potentially or even rules-based. Similarly, they say that digital pre-registration means the patient can complete paperwork from home. You know, I mentioned a minute ago, the kind of ban the clipboard scenario and, and, you know, where they can have access certainly to their medical records and their insurance information, things like that. So, you know, this is the promise, obviously, of portals. You think about Epic and MyChart and, you know, those types of things where they can message their provider safely, securely, get information back. They can find out information. They can schedule, uh, even have visits themselves, you know, from an access standpoint. And then there's the whole operational efficiency concept behind this as well. If we start to implement these sort of self-service solutions, then what, what can happen is, is you could kind of take a lot of the call center, I wouldn't say most of the call center, but a lot of the easy questions that kind of come through the call center around patient scheduling, you can automate those through some kind of online system, reducing manual labor, improving workflows. And, you know, overall, they even in the survey itself, they called out that 36% of providers said by implementing these kind of technological improvements around online appointment scheduling has helped to offset some of the staff shortages we're facing. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And, you know, kind of through these advancements, they call this out a little bit in the article, but kind of through these advancements and uh, even the evolving policies and whatnot, it can make the future of healthcare hard to predict. Certain trends uh, that we can kind of point to, I think that are somewhat, I guess, um, uh, well, I guess they are predictable, maybe based on expectations and otherwise, but, you know, one being that the patient will increasingly seek uh, out easy to use digital platforms, you know, when they're looking for care and, and things like that. I mean, the reason for this clearly, and this is not earth shattering information, is that's the way the rest of their life works, right? So it's not that they're, I think, honestly, I, I know they say in here, seek out easy to use digital platforms. I don't know if they're seeking it out <laughs> as much as they're just expecting it 
in going somewhere else if you don't have it. And maybe that's semantics a little bit, but I don't know that they're seeking it out. It's just, that's just what they assume is there. The other component behind this is this is really where a lot of generative AI is being kind of introduced to help providers identify patterns, automate workflows, and make it ultimately easier for everyone involved. This is a really great view of a patient access problem that's manifesting itself in our health systems. But I can't help but wonder, Reed, is this really the entire patient access journey, or is it really start of something called the diagnostic journey? And if you don't know what the term diagnostic journey looks like, we actually are going to have a link in the show notes to an article that basically outlines the diagnostic journey framework, where they're defining that as when patients first present to a healthcare provider, when their symptoms arise, and they want to seek out care. But that's truly not what patient access means exclusively. And what we could do here is we could take a little break. And when we come back, Reed, let's jump into a broader definition of what patient access could be. Do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so now let's shift just a little bit. Um, You know, I know we talked about patient access and kind of what it is and and those types of things, but uh, HHS also defines patient access. Uh, So the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services um, talks a lot about this. And quite honestly, there's quite a bit um, on their site as it relates to this. I mean, I think this splinters into a lot of different areas. They actually have a whole robust content library around this. But let's clue into the definition of patient access as they propose it on their site. Now, they didn't come up with it necessarily. You remember the Institute of Medicine? That was the institution formerly known as the Institute of Medicine is now called. Yeah, it's just a symbol now. Is that what they did? (laughs) Now, they're now called the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. I guess they went the other way that Prince did, right? They went to more words. But anyway, they define access to care or patient access, by stripping out out the term patient, and they really define access as the timely use of personal health services to achieve the best possible health outcomes. That seems like a generic definition as I read it. What it's starting to address is the fact that there are a number of barriers that prevent or limit people's access to needed healthcare services, which in turn will increase the risk of poor health outcomes and health disparities. I mean, they go on to talk a little bit about insurance coverage, which we won't get crazy in in the middle of necessarily, but there is some barriers there. So inadequate health uh, coverage, healthcare coverage is one of the largest barriers to healthcare access. And 
the unequal distribution of coverage contributes to the disparity in health they talk about. So some of that being out-of-pocket cost, this is why you see a spike around some of the elective pieces towards the end of the year, right? Because people have met deductibles and that kind of stuff. So, you know, this idea of you actually having to pay money, uh, whether you have a highly deductible plan or don't have insurance or whatever, really does lead to people delaying care or just foregoing it all together. Obviously, that has an adverse effect on the health of a population, as we could see. But they also indicate here that if we're able to implement health insurance across all of the U.S. population, that cannot remove every barrier to care. There's other barriers to care, and particularly one they highlight is a limited availability of healthcare resources. So for example, we heard about physician and nursing shortages. That may mean that patients experience longer wait times and delayed care before they can actually be seen. Also, inconvenient and unreliable transportation can interfere with access to healthcare, which you know in turn leads to negative health outcomes. Insurance is an interesting one to me because even people that have it, that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily a predictor that you're going to not forego care. Is that, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I, I don't know that, that I've done a good job personally. So there's another f- factor here in that the, the patients that really are not interested in seeking out care, is that what you're saying? Yeah, or just, I mean, this kind of goes back to that whole convenience thing, right? Or how how do you, the system, communicate in a one-to-one fashion, allowing for better adoption, maybe? It's not even about access, maybe adoption. You think about wellness visits, for example. How do we make it easy for folks? This is where digital comes in in a lot of cases. The insurance piece only tells kind of part of that story. And the limited access to healthcare is also part of that story as well. There's there's a certain concept uh, around where people will seek out healthcare while not identifying themselves as a patient that needs to go to a traditional healthcare place. Right? So maybe they even go into a pharmacist and ask a question of the pharmacist, or they go yeah. online and Google, or they go ask their friends on social media. They're not even directly going down the path of care, but they're they're trying to find easier or more convenient ways to get answers to their health problem. And you know, they may say, okay, I'm just going to rub some beet juice on my knee and it'll make it feel better in three months, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Do you go online now and chat GPT it instead of Google it? <laughs> Is that how that... <laughs> Well, if you Google it, you're, you could be barding it because that's what their uh, version is. You know, and I'm wondering if that's, you know, and that's an interesting thought, though, Reed, is like the search engines are now, all of them are starting to introduce some sort of generative AI solution, right? That yeah. would try to give them the right answers. But connecting those generative AI solutions to your healthcare system or to an actual point of delivery of care that might be a gap that we have to consider when it comes to this patient access problem. Is Googling access? Uh, Google does solve a lot of the challenges with access in that A, it could get you the right information if you search the right way. B, it's always on. It can always give you an answer in just you know a few milliseconds. Yeah. Whether it tells you that you have to go see an actual healthcare provider or not, that's where it gets a little tricky. 
So Chris, jumping back to the list here, another one they caught here is that research has shown that individuals from uh, different minority groups who have had an increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19 were more likely to lack transportation to healthcare services. And then that transportation barriers and residential segregation are also associated with late stage presentation of certain medical conditions like, like breast cancer and otherwise. That makes me wonder, though, Reed. I mean, so when we start talking about patient access strategies that include digital, does that mean now we have to get into solving the transportation needs? I mean, I think so. This is where some of the social determinants of health efforts or chronic care management efforts kind of come into play. So when you're looking at food insecurities or transportation needs or, or things like that, there is practically how do you solve from that? Like, hey, we're monitoring this patient. We're enrolling them in Meals on Wheels, for example. But then there's also how does digital play a role here where you could have a virtual visit. So think about a follow-up visit, right? I, I can think of an example where we have a hospital in a in a nice-sized town uh, in, in a state, but then we've got an outlying facility that's in a rural, you know, an hour away, like in a rural community. Does the person in that rural community need to drive an hour for this follow-up visit to only arrive in the doctor to say, you know, well, how are things going? Uh, fine. Okay, great. Well, let's check back. And it's like, well, I just had to take off from work. So now I'm losing income. I had to pay for somebody to watch my kids. So I'm losing income to drive here, spend gas to drive, to, to materially not do anything. Right. So instead, like, is there a digital solution where we, you know, have these follow up virtual visits and things like that in that fashion, you know, and they do it on a 15 minute break from work, you know. So, again, I think from an access standpoint, I think we have to reimagine a little bit what access means and how to solve for some of these things. And, you know, even HSS uh, outlines that you know, further research is needed to better understand where all those barriers of healthcare are in the organization. Reed, let's take a little pause here because when we come back, I think you and I should talk a little bit about the actual patient themselves, right? And some of those factors when they actually start to look to access healthcare in their lives and all of that, because this can also influence how we handle our digital patient access strategies. But let's do that after a brief pause. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Before the break, Reed, we were talking about, you know, patient access as a broader concept um, and even maybe removing the term of patient and just saying access to healthcare is a broader concept that can permeate itself in many ways to people that may not even be on the way towards care. I think it would be good for us now to talk a little bit about how potential consumers of healthcare begin their healthcare journey. And so first, let's talk about some of those Maybe those, those life milestones, various points in people's lives where depending on their specific healthcare needs and circumstances, they may start this journey towards potentially seeking some kind of care. And we have, we have a list of them here. So let's kind of go through the list. 
Yeah, first on the list, not surprisingly, just kind of like you know, your routine checkups, preventative care, wellness visits, things like that. So a lot of times that's uh, an individual's entry point. I mean, it certainly is, is a, a little little bitty one, right? Your parents may take you for well visits or vaccinations or physicals, back to school stuff, things you know that you have to have. Another one that makes sense, right, is healthcare coverage enrollment. So you're in open enrollment, which is coming up soon. Uh, when you obtain maybe new healthcare coverage through private insurance or your employer-sponsored plan, or even Medicare or Medicaid, you can enter the healthcare system to start to seek access to care based on the type of insurance coverage that you have. New health conditions, you know, sometimes over the point of your your life, uh, you may find yourself with a maybe a chronic condition or, or there, there's no telling, right? Something ultimately pops up in your life that you need to, to address. Yeah. And that's another point, right, of life events and transitions like pregnancy or childbirth or retirement. That could lead people to start to seek healthcare services specific to these lifestyle changes. You're, you're turning 50, it's time for that colonoscopy kind of thing. Uh, so that's more time-based sometimes, but uh, there's other kind of flip side of that is more emergent, right? So injuries, illness, things like that. You know, maybe you get the flu or, you know, heaven forbid you're in a car wreck or something like that that takes you, you know, through the ER. But sometimes, you know, this is the more like done to you part of the equation sometimes where you really weren't looking to engage the healthcare system. It just, it, it engaged you, you know, kind of deal. So, yeah. Yeah. Similarly, uh, you could be, you, when you're facing some kind of health condition that maybe your primary care doctor referred you to a specialist, then that could cause you on a very specialized healthcare journey to look for, you know, that particular type of specialist to treat that condition that you have. Next, health and wellness goals. You know, hypothetically, you hit a certain age and you decide you want to start taking care of yourself or you've let your belt out a loop or two, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, so maybe you've got some goals in your life that you're you know, proactively going out and, and trying to address. So this is where a lot of the obviously the fitness and nutrition and lifestyle changes and things like that come into play. Yeah. And one of the last ones that we kind of brainstormed around that could lead people into this actively into their patient access journey, so to speak, is around mental health. We've, we've been hearing a lot about um, mental health, and uh, there's a lot more awareness about that. So I think individuals are starting to become more concerned about seeking support or even treatment for mental health conditions. So that could lead people into another type of specialized patient access scenario. These are things that happen to individuals to kind of guide them that way. Now, as you said earlier in the show, Reed, though, there are a lot of things where they're not actively seeking out care, so to speak. So this is where the whole field of public health kind of comes into play, because I think public health plays a critical role in supporting patient access. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how you engage the system, but this is kind of how the system can engage you, I guess, maybe a little bit. So first on that list is is healthcare services and programs. And so there's a lot of agencies out there and organizations that, you know, provide some level of service or program, you know, typically and, and rightfully so focused uh, on the underserved populations. And so this could include, you know, some of these like free clinics and family planning, a lot of child and, and maternal services that you notice out there, things like that. 
And related to that, a lot of organizations, including uh, health insurers, focus on health education and promotion. Think about all of these awareness months that happen throughout the year. Well, those are typically tied to some public health and outreach initiatives that are occurring, sharing information about preventative measures, healthy lifestyle choices, um, making sure to you know check for breast cancer. I know that these happen throughout the year, or they may even happen you know, for a variety of different campaigns or initiatives, but this is a way that the system can start to intervene and, and draw awareness to care. Community health centers, I guess this is a little bit like some of the healthcare services and programs that are out there, but I guess are a little more known as a community health center. So again, it's more holistic and about supporting that community uh, and providing uh, at its core affordable and and accessible health care so people can hopefully be able to remove some of those barriers to some of the traditional facilities they may face. And related to that, when we talk about removing those barriers, we have seen a lot of organizations, um, public health and, and public health agencies, promote the use of telehealth and telemedicine services to rural or remote areas where access to healthcare facilities are limited. I even think about this as like, you know, Doctors Without Borders have started to really embrace telemedicine on a global level to try to reach areas where, you know, traditionally they're underserved. Next one on the list, a little bit different maybe than what we've talked about, but uh, policy and advocacy work. Um, So this is obviously something that professionals that work in that space lobby for, advocate for, or involved with uh, that really try to enhance that the access, certainly, and the equitable access to some of these services and care opportunities. So people that are really addressing those disparities amongst different populations. So again, as we're, as we're kind of going through this list, we're just kind of high level hitting some of these. Another one that we've seen very frequently over the last couple of years, particularly around the pandemic, are public health outreach around health screenings and preventative care programs, like vaccination programs, or, you know, even MPOX vaccination initiatives and efforts that are going out there. These are designed to identify health issues that are early and provide necessary interventions to reduce the burden of disease and promote timely access to care. Healthcare workforce development is the next thing on the list. So these are public health initiatives that focus on the training and development of healthcare professionals. We've talked about the nursing shortage, the nursing shortage that's been going on for, I don't know, my entire career. But we don't have enough clinicians. I don't care who you're talking about, doctors, nurses, therapists, dietitians, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And so, yeah, so a way that, you know, hopefully we can drive some of that education and development and through that, uh, allowing for better access. Yeah. I mean, if you think about all of these different types of solutions, you could see how public health is very much a patient access driven initiative, right? And, and these initiatives happen all throughout. There's a, a couple more here, Reed. Uh, social determinants of health and health equity programs. Public health works to address these impact patient access, things such as housing, education, employment, even access to healthy food, as, as you know, you and I kind of talked to, at a high level before about. Addressing these factors, public health will create the conditions to support better access to care. Finally, last thing on the list is emergency preparedness and response. So uh, public health agencies uh, certainly play a big and critical role in in this topic. So making sure that patients have access to necessary medical services and resources based on something else that went on, natural disasters, you know, public health emergencies, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think about that a lot. You know, as uh, all the people that are suffering from the heat waves, there's all these cooling cooling centers now popping up throughout very hot areas in Phoenix, Arizona, and other places across the country, right, to kind of support this. This is these are public health initiatives. But think about it, Reed. All of these public health efforts are really playing an integral role to improve patient access to healthcare services. So as we start thinking about developing patient access strategies with digital, think about all the opportunities that lie out there for us to start to have a meaningful impact on care. It is pretty wild, right? And this is, I think, another indication and and highlights, you know, how our roles have continued to evolve in the healthcare system from, you know, advertisers to marketers. Access is such a big deal. It doesn't do us a lot of good. We've talked about this idea of supply and demand. So just at a very high level, driving a bunch of demand where you don't have any opportunity or any supply or inventory to sell uh, is not particularly helpful to anybody. And so I think this is kind of along those lines. We've talked about how to free up some of that inventory, how to develop a way to um, support these communities. And so it's just, it's a different way of thinking about as we continue to be more consumer centric, a different way of thinking about the world versus here's what I need from you versus let me go wrap, you know, kind of our services around you and kind of where you are. And this really shows that evolution of digital, digital health and telemedicine to reach out to various parts of the entire concept of patient access to address them. And there are a lot of initiatives going on to support that. As we think about it, healthcare consumers, whether they identify themselves as that or not, uh, there are so many opportunities where we can engage them and, and help support their access to healthcare. And so, you know, I think that as we think about patient access strategies in the future, we got to think it's much greater than just making online appointment scheduling, right? There's a lot at stake yep. here. Okay, Reed. Well, with that, why don't we uh, close out the show? We'd love to hear what people think on what you're doing to kind of support to support patient access in your organization or in your company that you're working at. We'd love to hear some stories about what are some successes, what are some great monumental things that are happening, and we'll feature them on some future shows. But why don't we take a quick break here, Reed, and then we'll be back to close out the show. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right. Well, another great episode, another great show. Uh, again, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health, the TPS report. Great little value add uh, email each Monday with five articles to start your week. So I would encourage you to go sign up for that. And before we get out of here, uh, a couple of recommendations. Uh, what do you got today, Chris? Reed, I am going to recommend uh, something that's not really a product, but it's more of a um, 
concept or a, a thing that you could do. You know, I had a lot of people reach out to me and they, they really appreciated hearing my son's voice in the last uh, podcast that we did. They thought that was really cute. One thing that w- my wife and I have decided is we've enrolled him in daycare that's a Spanish immersion daycare because we really feel strongly about making sure that he understands and speaks multiple languages, right? So he's in the Spanish immersion daycare. By the way, I speak German, so I also am teaching him German. So ultimately, he could potentially grow up to be trilingual, if Uh-oh. that's right. But here's this leads to my recommendation, right? Which my recommendation is learn another language. I don't think you're ever too young or too old to learn a new language. I was raised, fortunately, uh, with have, in a bilingual household. That's why I speak German and English. And I know there's many of other people that do. But if you don't, and you only have one primary language, there are so many ways nowadays where you can learn a new language. Think about tools like Duolingo and you know and Babelfish, right? So those are some co- some technologies that are out there. But you can also just learn by reading a book or watching TV in a different language. That's how my mother, by the way, who was German, learned how to speak English. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can learn the language, learn different languages. And so this whole concept of learning multiple languages and being multilinguistic is uh, top of mind to me and my wife right now. And so that's my recommendation. Go out there and try to learn a different language, one maybe that you're not too familiar with. It certainly stimulates different parts of your brain, and it's fascinating. At any age in life, at any age and any stage in life, uh, it certainly is something that I think is uh, fun and rewarding. That's my recommendation, Reed. Very nice. Very, very nice. I've thought about that for years and probably just need to take the plunge and uh, start down that path of uh, learning another language. I am going to recommend... Ecobee, Ecobee, however you say it, thermostat. You know, Nest is always in, in Google purchased Nest, I guess. Uh, you know, has always been kind of a big name in this space, but recently purchased uh, an Ecobee 3 Lite. And it's a digital thermostat. Again, much like what you would assume it does, right? You hook it up, you're able to control via your phone or watch or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff and have all the programmable pieces and checking on it remotely and, and all that kind of fun stuff. What I like about it, though, oddly, is depending on the HVAC system you're on, you don't need a C-wire, you don't need power. There's a different way that this can potentially work in some scenarios where like a Nest thermostat wouldn't fit. So, but I, I like it and I like the app a lot. Again, kind of the UI and and things like that is real intuitive. And um, anyway, good value and works with Alexa, Siri, that kind of stuff, depending on which model you get. But yeah, that's what I'm going to recommend. That's a great recommendation. Now, I'm a, we have a Nest in our household, but my brother-in-law has an Ecobee in mm-hmm. his home, and I really come to admire it, too. I think it's great. I All about implementing the smart home. Yep. There you go. Be sure to check it out. I think you can get it on Amazon. Again, there's a few different models, but and they make a lot of other things too, like security systems and cameras, and like all these companies do. So uh, seems like good, good stuff though. There you go. Great recommendation. All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in for yet another episode of Touchpoint. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Be sure to reach out to us on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you, hear where you're going, what you're doing, what you're up to. Uh, if there's a topic or somebody we should talk to, uh, reach out and let us know. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.